Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, an introduction to the book of Judges. Well, today we uh, begin our study of the book of Judges, one of the lesser read books of the Bible, and equally so, one of the lesser researched sections of scriptures by scholars. And I'll tell you frankly that Christian scholars in particular just don't know quite what to do with this book. And Jewish scholars seem to kind of prefer to go around it. All right, for reasons that will become apparent as we proceed through it. But by any standard, this is an important and truly fascinating book of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, that, that will keep your interest. I promise you that. And especially because it has significant parallels to the modern church age. If only we'll have the eyes to see and the ears to listen. Now, let me say that again because I'm going to make this point to you boldly and often. The time of the judges greatly mirrors the current tenuous situation of the church age. Now, this week is a preparation for the study of judges so that we'll view it in the proper context and we'll know what to look for and hopefully to see how to apply its lessons to our lives. Now, believers tend to know of the book of Judges mostly from the story of Samson and uh, Delilah a favorite among children's Sunday school teachers I mean who could ever forget that handsome charismatic young man with the long locks that were the secret of his superhuman strength and that beautiful woman who seduced him and betrayed him to his enemies so the story is usually told as a tale of a heroic figure of extraordinary physical prowess kind of the inhe- incredible Hebrew Hulk right, that, that took on the wicked Philistines that were lording over a goodly portion of the twelve Israelite tribes at that time now the finale of course has Samson sacrificing his own life as a courageous martyr in order to destroy the pagan temple to Dagon while killing as many of the Philistine priests and lords as he could in the process. Unfortunately, the way the story is commonly told usually misses the point. And it miscasts the roles of the characters, especially Samson. Much the way King Solomon is commonly miscast as an extraordinarily wise and regal figure just going about doing God's work in a way the Lord approves. Nothing could be further from reality in either case. Now the entire and by the way unfinished salvation history of Israel is important but there are few more critical eras in Israel's development than the one that's chronicled in this book the book of Judges. Now this is the era Judges that Israel slid rapidly towards national suicide. Right, due to their determined apostasy from Jehovah. Now I'm afraid that when we take the proper perspective of this historical record, it is one of great sadness and of 
It's about a self-delusional people who insist on the one hand that they are faithful to Yehovah. But on the other hand, they vigorously pursue peace and friendship at any price with their pagan neighbors. And the price for this peace is invariably voluntary assimilation into the pagan cultures and the mystery Babylon religious systems that the whole remainder of the known world reveled in. Thus, we're going to see three major themes develop in Judges. The first is Israel's military and spiritual struggles as they wrestle among themselves and, the, and, and they battle with the remaining Canaanites, the ones that Joshua failed to drive out, in order that they can settle the land and create a lasting and more durable society of farmers and shepherds and, and craftsmen. Now, the second theme is the amazing grace and long-suffering, but not infinite, patience of God's faithfulness to the covenant he made with Israel. As opposed to the amazing disinterest and schizophrenic behavior of Israel and their lack of faithfulness in return. Now the third theme is what some scholars call the Canaanization of Israel. In other words, it's how the people of God became more and more like the world around them instead of staying separate from the world or their lives preferably influencing the world around them to be more like Israel. Now, we're going to witness Israel being oppressed in many ways by a number of enemies. But not so much that they were forcibly dragged, kicking and screaming into idolatry. Okay. Rather, Israel preferred more of the pagan gods that the world enjoyed and less of their own god because it seemed not only the more tolerant thing to do, but also it was more economically and socially expedient. Now, I hope this last theme pricked your ears a little bit. Maybe even stabbed at your heart because it certainly stabs at mine. Anyone who listens to Torah class regularly knows that at times I'm quite critical of the modern church. Not because I'm above it, but because I'm part of it. I'm in the midst of it. I love the church. I love my brothers and sisters of the faith, Messianic Jew and traditional Gentile, but I am at times befuddled and downhearted at the obvious place we have arrived. And the equally obvious path of confusion and downright idolatry that we just merrily rush along with full confidence that we're in good stead with the Almighty in the so doing. Many of you can see it and you are making personal decisions and changes to chart a new way or as I prefer to think of it, a return to the old, well-defined and documented ways of the earliest body of believers when the Lord's presence was so tangible and His power flowed in ways we've not seen in a long time. In the days of the judges, there was a remnant of the Israelite leaders that warned and begged the people to wake up. Recognize how their faith had been co-opted by other Israelite leaders who sought only to further their private agendas 
or to blend in with their neighbors and so gain wider acceptance. In opposition to this remnant of the faithful was this ever-growing majority of Israelites and other leaders that said that the current situation demanded that the definition of sin be altered and that peace with their neighbors was more important. It was a greater good than obedience to an ancient decree about sacred land holdings or full devotion to their one God and his laws. I've regularly said that the church and Israel have run nearly parallel historical paths. And I've used the analogy of two rails of a railroad track. The picture being that the rails are separate and distinct and they never touch one another, yet they're connected in purpose and origin. They begin at the same place, they follow the same path, they arrive at the same destination. They're made of the same stuff. They behave in the same way. And it is natural that this would be the case because the immutable, God-ordained patterns that rule the universe mean that history is doomed to repeat itself in never-ending cycles until Messiah comes again to put an end to it. Thus, just as the Israelites detoured nearly overnight from their golden era of obedience and faith to Jehovah as they conquered Canaan and they celebrated victory after victory in the book of Judges, we'll see them taking a devastating turn down a path of darkness, all the while calling it light and progress. It was only a matter of a couple of decades after Joshua's death that we find Israel mired in idol worship and oppression, all of it at their own hand. And of course, the church is following this same pattern. After centuries of victory, right, when against all odds, for all practical purposes, every remote corner of our planet has been penetrated and presented with the gospel of Yeshua, after but a mere 60 years, when at the cost of their own lives, the righteous stood up and defeated that indescribable evil of Adolf Hitler and his satanic desires to dominate this world and rid it of God's chosen people. Today we have a loud and growing voice within the church that says sin must be redefined because it just doesn't fit with modern societal needs. A Christian no longer even needs to believe in Christ. A Jew can be perfectly comfortable as an atheist. That same rising voice says that love now means peace at any price. Mercy means protecting the lives and rights of the guilty at the expense of the innocent. Unity means compromise of principles to the lowest common denominator to achieve consensus. More and more denominations have made it their creed that God by any name is still God. And therefore we should honor and respect all religions and see them as no better nor worse than our Judeo-Christianity because all paths to the divine are equal and good. 
As Arthur Kundal says in his commentary on the book of Judges, he says, it may be that the modern reader of Judges will hear that warning voice of the Holy Spirit. This is not the way. Walk ye not in it. I can only hope that as we delve into these destructive foibles of the tribes of Israel contained in these passages of Judges that we will have the humility and the openness to see that we're not on the outside looking in on some hapless ancient Hebrews bent on wickedness. We're them. We are them. And we're in great danger of committing spiritual suicide. We as the body of Messiah already have that gun to our collective heads and our fingers on the trigger. Will we lay that gun down and repent and realize that our religious philosophies and man-made denominational doctrines that seek to apologize for many of God's commands or even replace them, that has to be abandoned for the better and more pure ways of His Word. Or, as in Yeshua's parable of the seeds, will we listen for a while to this call to holiness and to purity, but then fall away, go back to the easier, more familiar path, return to the comfortable and accepted ways of the majority, and just dare God to exercise His righteous justice upon those whom He loves so very much. You know, a long time from now, when the story of the current Christian era is retold, it is certainly going to look much like a modern adaptation of the book of Judges. Only the names and the places will be changed. So let's pay attention to what the Lord's going to tell us. Take it to heart and then let's put it into action. Let's determine together to take the better, more difficult path through the narrower gate and to please the Father rather than simply surrendering to false accusations, peer pressure, short-term harmony with the world or even with religious institutions that have lost their way but they don't want to lose you. The title of this book, Judges, easily conjures up false images of its meaning. And in 21st century minds at least, just what their function was in the centuries in between Joshua and the first king of Israel. The English title Book of Judges comes from the Latin Liber Judicum, which comes from the Greek Kritai, which means judge. Just as we think of a judge like this in all cases these words are an attempt to translate the Hebrew word shoftim shoftim now we should not think that this biblical kind of judge as portrayed in the book of Judges is a person who sits behind a bench in dark robes determining guilt or innocence of an accused while some of the several shoftim may have performed this function it was a minor part of what they did it simply fell to them sometimes as their roles as leaders 
These folks did not operate in a legal sphere. They were more like saviors and rescuers who were raised up for a season and usually for a limited purpose among an equally limited group of Israelite tribes. That is, these judges were only for certain of the tribes, not all of them. They were not national leaders of Israel. They were just regional leaders of certain tribes. Now, it's difficult to find the words to describe the role of a shofet, which is the singular form of shoftim, plural, which is plural. Partly because they didn't all do the same things. Nor were the skill sets and the attributes of these several judges the same. If we use the term savior in in a generalized sense to at least partially define their purpose it does help us to a degree get the picture you know think about Jesus role and it helps us to grasp the office of Shaphat judge especially when Jesus explained follow me that he came not to judge that is, not to hand out judgment, but to save. In other words, with Yeshua's first coming, as in the role of Messiah ben Yosef, the suffering servant, he indeed did not come to be a judge of mankind, but rather to save us from our predicament so that we might not later face judgment. But later... At his future second coming, he's going to come in an entirely different role. He will come later as Messiah ben David, the warrior king. He will come not as a savior when he comes next. Don't ever think so. Not as a shofet will he come. But as the one who carries out the father's justice. He will come as the one who indeed judges as from a bench and orders sentences carried out. So like Messiah, these Shoftim of the book of Judges were sent by God to save certain segments of Israel from whatever their current predicament as opposed to sending them to render judicial judgments. Now, I don't want to carry that comparison between Yeshua, Yeshua and the Shoftim, the judges, too far for obvious reasons, but as far as I've gone, is appropriate. Now, now, the use of the term Shofet didn't first appear in the book of Judges. We find Moses using it earlier in Deuteronomy chapters 16, 17, and 19 to describe an appointed leader who was to stand side by side with the high priest as perhaps the next highest leader of Israel. This kind of earlier shofet indeed did have civil judicial responsibilities that extended even to the military, Joshua's army, and to a lesser extent to religious matters. Now, as we've discussed in the closing lessons of the book of Joshua, the duties of a Shafet changed quite significantly over time because circumstances changed so significantly from the era of the wilderness journey to the conquest of Canaan to the time that we arrive at now here in the book of Judges. 
In fact, the Shoftim of the book of Judges wouldn't even be recognizable in Moses' day and vice versa. There were a significant number of Shoftim raised up by God for Israel and the book of Judges identifies 12 or 13 counting Deborah. Now there's some minor disagreement among both Jewish and Christian scholars as to just who counted as a judge. So the number can vary by one or two, maybe even three, depending on whom you listen to. Now there are a few names that are often called judges, but that's somewhat questionable depending on how we define the office. For instance, Samuel is often included as a judge, but he's not mentioned in the book of Judges. The same goes for Eli. Eli. We do find Abimelech mentioned in the book of Judges, and more or less he's called a judge, but he's usually rejected as a legitimate Shaphat by most Bible scholars because he was self-appointed and he was not called by God. Thus we see that perhaps the prime characteristic and the common denominator among all the Shoftim of the book of Judges was their being specifically called by God for this purpose. Theirs is not unlike the office of a true biblical prophet. Over the centuries, many ancient Hebrews claimed to be prophets. Just as beginning in early church times and continuing right up until today, we have thousands of believers who declare themselves as prophets of God. But from a biblical perspective, a prophet is only a prophet when there is a tangible appointing of that person by Yehovah to be a prophet. So, at least during the time from, say, the death of Joshua until the emergence of Saul as the first king over Israel, a judge, a shofet, by definition was first, appointed by God. Second, sent by God as a savior to rescue some number of Israelite tribes from an oppressor. Now, going with the idea that there were 12 judges, there were in order Othniel, Ehud, Chemgar, Barak, uh, Gideon, and then we jump down to uh, Tola, Yair, uh, Yesta, Ipsan, Elon, and Samson. Okay? And then at the end, Abdon. Now, if we add a 13th, and I think we should, all right, it's Deborah. And, of course, she's concurrent with uh, Barach. Now, if we were to add another, that quite a few Jewish and Christian scholars add, it would be Samuel. And I'm not too keen on that because he was really more of a prophet than a judge and the savior aspect really isn't clear. Anyway, of these divinely authorized Shoftim, there are seven in the book of Judges where the stories of their actual deliverance of Israel from some predicament or another is recorded. Otniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Barak, and Deborah, Gidon, um, Yephtah, and Samson. 
Five others are said in the book of Judges to have saved Israel from something, but no account of whatever that was was ever recorded that we, we know of. Now, there's no real evidence of who wrote the book of Judges. A Jewish tradition says that Samuel did. But others, other than that, the author is just unknown. Okay. The only real controversy about the authorship of Judges is when it was written. Okay. And how many times it might have been edited. But the most rancorous argument over this book is the actual time period of the Judges. The time period it's covering. And there is a wide disparity about that for reasons we'll examine briefly. There are two basic timelines set out for the era of the Shoftim. The 400-year version and the 200-year version. And you're going to find excellent scholars on both sides of the argument. Each with solid foundations for the conclusion. So we're not going to be able to settle that argument here, nor are we going to get into any doctrinal disputes about it. Okay. And then within each of these two basic timeline versions, there are differences depending on whether one uh, adds or not Samuel and Eli as judges because then it would automatically extend that period this direction a little bit. Now note that the timeline, that uh, one timeline is virtually twice as long as another. That's awfully significant. The primary reason one would go with the 400 year version is the conclusion that the Exodus was much earlier than the other version theorizes. The 400-year version sees the Exodus as happening in the 1400s B.C., while the 200-year version sees it happening in the late 1300s to early 1200s B.C. Now, the end point, the end point of the period of the Judges, of around 1040 to 1020 B.C., is pretty well defined because we have sufficient records from a number of sources to show that this is when Saul, became the first king of Israel, which by definition ends the era, era of the judges. Now, for you archaeology buffs, the book of Judges is essentially the transition period from the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. And it coincides with the settlement of the Sea Peoples, who came to be known later on in the Bible as the Philistines. Okay. Thus, by the time we get to the, area, to the era of Samson, who is one of the last judges, we see that the Philistines have become well established in Canaan and they're creating havoc for Israel. And especially the tribe that's adjacent to them, Dan, and another very nearby tribe, Judah. So, when was Judges written? Well, it certainly had to be after all the events of the book of Judges had occurred and it had to be sometime after the time of King Saul because the last words of the book of Judges say that everything written in the book happened before there was a king over Israel. So the writer knew when that first king was, was anointed. This means it had to have been written at 1025 BC roughly or a little later we can probably narrow it down a little farther because the writer of Judges tells us that the city of Gezer was still under the control of the Canaanites 
at the time that he was writing this. Right? And we know that by the time of King Solomon, Israel had finally gained control over Gezer from the Philistines. So it was probably written, the book of Judges was probably written sometime during the early days of King David's reign. Right? When he was only king over Judah. Right? And before he became before he became king over a united Israel that included the ten tribes of the northern area that was dominated by the Israelite tribe of Ephraim. Perhaps 990, 995 BC is where we're looking. The important thing is that it was written not long after the period of the judges, so the information can be taken as historically reliable. Now, from a political standpoint, the era of the judges is this extended time of instability for the 12 tribes and Levi. And we're going to talk about all that in a few minutes. They had no central leadership like they had under Joshua. They said, I mean, rather, that said they were supposed to have looked towards God as their king. And his will was going to be determined by means of the priesthood, the Torah, and then liberal use of the Urim and Tumim, those two stones. Now, the priesthood was to have performed to a degree as the new central government for the 12 tribes. But I submit that a, a much better characterization, uh, characterization of their intended purpose was as Israel's central conscience as Israel's moral compass. And in some ways, it did fulfill that function, but it rapidly lost its hold as each tribe wanted to do things their own way. Okay. Now, let's face it. We all know how easy it is to ignore our conscience when we find it convenient. That's what was going on in the era of the judges. So, how could we describe the kind of governing that the tribes of Israel operated under at that time. Let me throw a 50 cent word at you. Amphictony. Okay, and amphictony is not a made up academic word. Right? It's actually a Greek word. And it's the name of a certain type of ancient Greek political governmental structure that existed for hundreds of years. And among the Greeks, it was... It describes a loose confederation of their city-states that attempted to help one another for their common defense and for their common economies and to abide by a common set of laws and ethics. But this only went to a point. This was not centralized government. This wasn't a republic or a federation with a visible leader. It was much more similar to an extensive trade and security treaty and really not unlike the UN where participation was voluntary and there, there was no actual central authority except on a, maybe on a case-by-case basis. Now, Israel operated much like an amphictony. But what made Israel a unique kind of amphictony during the era of the judges is that while... Like the Greeks, they too were a loose confederation without a formal central government. The binding elements for them were not security and economy, but rather family and religion. All twelve tribes and levy were descended from Jacob. 
They were all loyal to the covenant of Moses. Thus, they could be viciously fighting one another for a time and then turn right around and recognize that they're brother tribes of Jacob and, and let bygones be bygones. And we see this same thing happening all over the Middle East and most visibly in Iraq today. This is one of the interesting characteristics inherent in tribal societies, which at the same time leaves us Westerners confounded and frustrated as we watch it happen. I mean, one tribe, perhaps, that we want, that we, that we back, we back them politically, is on the verge, finally, of soundly defeating another one that we'd like to see defeated, then everything inexplicably stops and they make a peace treaty. Why? Because in the end, they recognize their common ancestors and therefore their blood relationship, even if it's very distant. And they don't wish to eliminate them from the gene pool. Right? Or see their so-called brothers overly humiliated. Okay? Keep this in mind as we study judges. Because it's going to help you understand why they made some of the very strange and befuddling decisions that they made. Now, we have established what a shofet, a judge, is. He functioned as a savior or a rescuer of Israel and not as an arbiter of civil or criminal cases. And in general, how many judges there were from 12 to 16, depending on your precise definitions of a judge. And we learned that in the era of the shoftim, it was immediately following Joshua, somewhere between, starting somewhere between 1400 and 1300 BC, and then of course it ended with the crowning of the first king of Israel, Saul, sometime around 1020 BC. We also know they operated as a loose confederation of tribes, called an Amphictony, whose point of cohesion Cohesion and reason to remain as this federation was ancestral family ties and a common devotion to the covenant of Moses. Therefore, let's take a look now at what the overall situation was that existed for those 12 tribes in the land as they transitioned from Joshua to Judges. From a strong central leadership and a common cause to a very ill-defined governmental structure that supposedly had Jehovah uh, as their king and the priesthood as his earthly messengers, but in reality, it was a lot closer to every man for himself. Now, first is that just as in any system of society, there, there wasn't a monolithic train of thought or, or, or behavior among the Hebrews in the, in the Promised Land. The high standards and ideals demanded by God and demonstrated by Moses and Joshua and at least for a short time, Joshua's immediate successors, weren't necessarily emulated or even admired by the Israelites in general. They had much more practical matters to deal with, like raising families, growing crops, tending vines, shepherding flocks. And we must not fail to put into the back of our minds the reality that one of Joshua's last acts was to have a covenant renewal ceremony during which he 
pleaded with the people of Israel to get rid of their false gods and idols. Do you remember that? None of this boded very well for the character of Israel. Okay. Next is that Joshua's inability to lead Israel to a total and complete conquest of Israel and his and his elders and tribal princes' proclivity to make treaties with these various Canaanite tribes instead of driving them out of the land or destroying them as the Lord demanded, this was going to prove to be Israel's Achilles' heel. In a nutshell, Israel quickly adopted, uh, rather adapted to the idea of having the Canaanites as neighbors. And so they tried to find ways to live among them in peace. Naturally, compromise and tolerance were the words of the day. The twelve tribes had lost any enthusiasm to finish what they'd started. And and the complete conquest of Canaan was put on the shelf. The result of that decision is the root of the troubles we witness in the Middle East today. Now we're going to see that as a result of this lax attitude that mixed marriages between Hebrews and Canaanites became quite a normal and accepted arrangement in a startlingly short time. But because of the way ancient societies operated, this necessarily meant that there must be a compromise or a clash over the issue of whose God was going to be preeminent in that blended family. Jehovah or one of the Baal gods. And one can only imagine that this made family situations pretty tense sometimes. Now the result of two widely different cultures mixing in this kind of a way is unavoidable. Syncretism. There's another new 50 cent word for you. Syncretism comes from the word synchronize. And we all generally understand that to synchronize something is to make two or more things operate simultaneously or in some kind of a coordinated way. So syncretism is an attempt to reconcile two different moral or religious systems and then mold them into something else that retains elements of both. And thus it becomes reasonably acceptable for all parties. When it comes to religion, in those ancient times, that meant that somebody's God had to take an inferior position and another person's God a superior position but both were retained. Or maybe both persons' gods might be given a generally equal status with equal recognition and equal authority within the family. Now, rarely in this, this process of blending and harmonizing two religious systems and God pantheons is this done at some kind of a bargaining table. Okay? Or even is it really a conscious effort? But it does happen that way, as it did with Constantine and the councils of Nicaea and Laodicea. Rather, this sort of thing usually happens quite quietly and naturally over time, slowly, without much deliberation or fanfare, no no real overt intent. One moment, 
Yehovah is your only God to whom you give your full devotion, then you marry a Canaanite who worships the Baals. And a few years later, you suddenly look up to realize that not only is Yehovah no longer your only God, he holds an, inc- an equal or maybe even an inferior position to another God. What comes, what was foreign, isn't even strange anymore. A little more time passes. And now that syncretism becomes cemented. And a whole new system has been created. And any questioning of the rightness or wrongness of it has disappeared. Any memory of how it even happened becomes irrelevant. Sometimes it's even lost to history. Now, I hope this is causing the wheels in your minds to turn. The church has been engaged in syncretism for centuries. The earliest church syncretism was when it blended the pagan religions of the Gentiles with the messianic religion of the Jews. The result was the Roman church in the West and the Orthodox church in the East. The progress of Christian syncretism with the world's cultures long ago passed the tipping point. And now practically every demographic that can be applied to the world in general is the same for the church in general. Marriage, divorce, Abortion, criminal activity, and more recently, sexual orientation is nearly indistinguishable between believers and non-believers. And of course, the culture and behavior that has won out in this constant blending of Christianity and the world is that of the majority, the unbelieving world. That's the nature of syncretism. The interfaith movement is currently advancing religious syncretism like a virulent cancer in our time. It's being touted and admired by many of the top Christian and Jewish leaders and naturally the top secular leaders the world over. And what was originally intended to harmonize Christian doctrines among the thousands of denominations in order to foster unity, is now attempting to also harmonize Islam with Christianity and those faiths with the Oriental mystical religions. For those of you who are undecided as to whether or not the interfaith ideal is a good or a bad thing, let me remind you that the God principle which undergrids the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is dividing, electing, and separating. The Lord created distinctions between His people and those who are not His people. And He carefully defined which were which. And He demands that those distinctions be maintained forever. Syncretism is but the modern academic word for the disillusion of distinctions. It is the term for the reversal 
of the God principle of dividing, electing, and separating. Syncretism is what Nimrod strived for with the Tower of Babel, Babel as the monument to syncretism. The syncretism that was the downfall of Israel in the era of the judges is the same that we are all engulfed in today within, within institutional Christianity. Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? See, the test is not simply to agree on an intellectual level. The test is to act upon that agreement. Well, let's move on to look at the next element of Israel's overall situation. We'll be done here very shortly. As they enter the time of the judges. It is that the godly leadership of Joshua and his immediate successors has all but disappeared. The marvelous Torah-based standards were set aside for the kind of self-serving and pragmatic behaviors that we're all too familiar with in our modern politicians and corporate kingpins. Okay. This condition was not only reserved for the godless or the backslidden leaders of Israel. Practically every shofet that the Lord called upon had significant moral and character flaws. And the scriptures make no attempt to hide it. None of the show team of the book of Judges could have held a candle to the leadership skills and ethics of Joshua, Moses, or Phineas. Samson in particular is problematic. This grown man with the self-control and emotional capacity of a junior high schooler who was born under a Nazarite vow showed practically no interest in spiritual matters whatsoever. Yet, he would be chosen by God to smite the Philistine enemies. Samson was a party animal. He married a foreign girl. At times he killed for his own pleasure just to show off. His final undoing was a beautiful prostitute who seduced him with very little effort. Earlier in the period of the judges from Samson, we're going to run into Yephthah, Jephthah, whose mother was a harlot and whose reputation was so bad that he got run out of his tribal territory. But he was such a good fighter and a military leader that he was asked to return to help them fight off an oppressor. When he at least showed some humility before the God of Israel, he ruined it by declaring that he'd sacrificed the first thing that came through his home's doorway to greet him as he, as he returned from a presumed victory. That thing turned out to be his only daughter. And despite the Christian apologists who claimed that he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter to Jehovah, the, plain, the scripture plainly says that he did what he vowed to do. We're even told of his daughter going away for a few weeks, knowing what her fate would be so that she could mourn, not ever being able to have a husband and a family. And it became a tradition spoken of in the Bible, by the way to mourn her sad fate. 
And as we go through each of the seven stories of deliverance in the book of Judges, each by a different judge, we're going to find a seriously dark side, an equally perverted sense of morality, and morality inherent in each and every one of them. Okay. But frankly, I find this one of the great reasons to believe the Bible. Nothing is whitewashed away. Even its heroes are shown to be what they were, flawed humans. Now, while this admittedly dark and pessimistic summation of Israel's condition at that time is quite accurate to be balanced, it must be said that on the positive side, they did well to maintain their tribal structure and that when left alone, the tribes were generally pretty harmonious. It was when outside influences were exerted that one tribe or another would buckle under the pressure and this would sometimes even lead to intertribal warfare. Even though there was no serious attempt at genocide of one Israelite tribe upon another one, or even to erase the existence of a tribe by means of full and complete absorption by a more dominating tribe, we will see absorption and diminishing of some tribes happen. So, with that as an introduction and a backdrop, next week we'll begin Judges chapter 1.